This is the current federal tax developments for the week of May the 15th, 2023. Current federal tax developments are brought to you by Kaplan Financial Education and by your state society of CPAs. I'm Ed Zoller, CPA here in Phoenix, Arizona, and we're going to talk to you about some developments that came up this week. We're going to begin this week's discussion by looking at an IRS email that discuss an interesting situation that arises when a PEO, professional employer organization, ends up getting a payroll tax refund that is available to one of its clients, but when the PEO itself has a tax liability outstanding and unpaid. And as we'll discover, there are some risks to using a PEO, and this turns out to be one of them. Secondly, we'll talk about an IRS private letter ruling that dealt with a settlement of a case between a credit union and a class action group involving whether the credit union had given proper notices and if they hadn't given proper notices about attempting to essentially repossess a piece of property that they had secured note on, that the note was essentially a non-recourse note. Now we're gonna talk about whether or not the IRS ruled the 1099 had, to, or I should say, the credit union had to issue a 1099-C for cancellation of debt. And I also want to talk about why it's not quite the same question as asking if the individual receiving the 1099-C is going to have to report cancellation of debt income. So we'll talk about the distinction of those two uh, and also what the IRS ruled and why the IRS said that, yes, the credit union needed to issue a 1099-C in this case. Finally, we'll talk about a piece of news that broke early in the week, uh, reported by tax notes today regarding a IRS decision to change the Schedule K-1 for partnerships for 2023. We're going to be asking for more information regarding debts and apparently specifically non-recourse -re debts, I should say, and specifically looking at issues such as if you have a debt restoration obligation that is you know create that is basically responsible for some or all of your amount of debt that's being allocated to you and also if you have a debt guarantee that is creating some or all of the debt being allocated to you on the k1 so we'll talk a little bit about that and maybe too somewhat what the irs may be looking for there well let's start out with that email that came out this past week on may 12th it is the IRS ECC 2023-19015. And this was in an email response, the IRS basically examined a situation where a PEO submitted a claim for refund on behalf of one of its clients regarding the employee retention credit. Now, this of course is what's gotten all the attention right now, but what the IRS is gonna rule here would apply anytime that a PEO was filing for a refund of taxes on behalf of one of its clients. We'll talk about what's going to be our problem. The question became, what happens if when that refund is being issued, the PEO has outstanding unpaid overdue federal tax liabilities? The question becomes, can the IRS offset the refund, which is being generated by one of the PEO's customers can they offset that against that unpaid tax of the PEO? And the conclusion reached is that essentially the IRS does have and plans to use the authority to offset that refund that may go back and tie to the client, 
of the PEO, but they're going to use that to pay off or to apply at least pay down the amount of unpaid taxes by the PEO in that scenario. And I suspect this email, which specifically mentions the ERC, is being written at this point because we have probably somewhere at least one PEO that has this particular problem. And you're going to have some customers that probably won't be happy with the answer. So the key question was asked was, and this appears to be an internal question, which normally it would be, between let's say somebody at a service center or somebody who received the claim for refund, they're going to approve the claim for refund, but they've noticed that there's this unpaid liability by the PEO. And they wanted to know whether or not the IRS is authorized to offset that refund. Now, let's remember, professional employer organization comes to employers and says, hey, look, we can take care of all your HR and payroll tax needs. Uh, just, you know, go ahead, hire us. We will be the employer of all your employees. We'll file W-2s. We'll get the payroll taxes paid. Of course, we're going to charge you for this. and You're going to pay us. We'll probably also provide them with a medical plan maybe you know, a 401k program. Uh, we'll give you HR services that you probably aren't big enough to have an HR department, so we'll cover that for you too. And we'll do all that for you, and obviously you pay us a fee on top of all of this. And the PEO under special rules is allowed to essentially file one giant 941 and attach this thing called Schedule R that gives details on each of their clients but it is still a 941 for the PEO and under the PEO's EIN because the PEO is the one that issues the W-2s. Technically, they're the employer of the employees. So the question was asked, you know, can we do this? Can we do this offset? And the email goes on to take a look at IRC section 6402A. And it says, basically, they have the discretion to credit any overpayment against any liability in respect of an internal revenue tax on part of the person who made the overpayment, right? And they note that they had made the decision that for all the COVID credits, not just the ERTC, but also, you know, for the, basically for the sick pay credit that, you know, and paid family and leave credit, the COBRA credit and other things that they were going to do the offset. So, the IRS position had been, let's say you were an employer filing your own 941. You had unpaid taxes. I don't know, care if they're income taxes or if you're you know, just payroll taxes, trust fund, not trust fund. You have unpaid federal taxes. Their position was that when that refund is generated, we're first going to offset the taxes that remain unpaid. So the question becomes at this point, you know, what in the world do we do? And it's also true for refundable credits, which most of these are, right? You, you could get them even if the entire credit exceeded your basic tax liability. So bottom line, we can go ahead, we can do that offset. But now the question becomes, who's the person, right? Is the person the PEO or is the person the client of the PEO? In essence, whose tax liability could be offset? And generally, 6402, as they noted here, specifically talks about the person that made the overpayment and tax liabilities of that person, right? So the IRS email concludes that if a taxpayer uses a third-party payer, uh, the process for claiming credits uh, differs depending upon the type of third-party payer used. If a taxpayer uses a Section 3402 agent, a certified professional employer organization, 
or a non-certified standard PEO that pays wages to individuals as part of services provided to a client pursuant to a service agreement between the PEO and the client. Although the credits are attributable to wages paid to the client's employees, the PEO in this case, our example is a PEO, but the same rule would apply to a 3502 agent or a C or a certified uh, professional employee organization, is the party actually claiming the employment tax in an aggregate amount on a single line on Form 941 filed under its own EIN. If a refund's ultimately issued to the aggregate filer, it's then between the filer and their client, you know, the TPP, in essence, the PEO in this case, is the one that will then have to write a check back to its client, or at least write a check, maybe net of whatever processing fee they might have charged, to file that particular revised return. The IRS does not issue the check back to the client of the PEO. And we've known that since the, basically the IRS came out last, back in 2021, two years ago now, you know, with the basic initial ruling, uh, the notice on how we're going to handle employee retention credits after the 2020 changes, late 2020 changes. And so we've always known that the credit goes to the, basically the PEO, and then the PEO has to turn around and decide, you know, and make basically write checks to all of their clients that were part of that refund claim. And they get to decide how that gets done with the agreement. The email notes, the IRS is not a party to these agreements. They are private agreements, which the IRS has no right to see, at least not without asking, you know, showing relevance between the parties. In this case, they wouldn't really need to ask to see it. Uh, if you audit the 941s, you're examining the aggregate total of the line credit claimed on line 41 used by the, you know, use the client by client allocation information. The IRS does not issue refunds or make credit adjustments to the client and to themselves, but rather everything goes through that third party payers uh, payroll tax return. So any credits are a reduced liability of the TPP. Because of that, right? That means that since they cannot itself use the Schedule R information to determine their ultimate tax liability, they couldn't determine what type of refund. There'd be various situations where they couldn't even attempt to figure out how much to give to each individual client. So essentially, the IRS simply gives it to the TPP, and it's up to them, based on their agreement with their clients, to get a refund to them. As a practical matter, as they're saying, um, you know, well, they really are giving a benefit to the TPP because let's say, you know, they owe $20,000 of unpaid income taxes on, let's say they're a C Corp and they offset, you know, a $100,000 employee retention credit refund, you know, offset 20 of that and only give them 80. They still got a hundred grand worth of benefits or their income tax liability has been paid off. In theory, the idea goes, they would still be probably under their contract obligated to write a check for 100,000 or 100,000 less whatever processing fee they were going to be charging to their customer. But of course, remember we've got a situation here now where supposedly the PEO was as unpaid in taxes. That's probably not a good sign. And so they go on as a practical matter to note that, hey, you know what? Uh, they understand that the employer may have practical difficulties receiving payments if they've, you know, if they have outstanding federal tax liabilities, because it probably means that the, you know, the PEO is in financial difficulties. That's a civil matter between the, 
you know, third party payer and the employer. And frankly, the IRS says, look, you don't have to use a PEO. You've decided to use one. This is one of your risks that if you have, if you have for whatever reason, including a credit nobody saw coming, that you have a, suddenly a right to against payroll taxes and Congress decided to run it through there. Well, that means that that credit is going to first be used to offset PEO unpaid taxes. And you just realize that's a risk. Now, as I noted, this issue is not solely limited to employee retention credit claims. And there should be a number of client concerns if that, if that happens. In essence, this is more than just a concern that, hey, I'm not getting my employee retention credit, which would be a concern, but there are bigger problems you might have. Right? So what are their concerns they may have understanding this, or they should have? Look, they might not receive an ERC or any other credit that they are owed. That's a practical potential problem with the offset. And honestly, you think about this, they're being held indirectly liable or responsible for getting the PEO's tax liabilities paid off because they qualified for a refund. So because of that, hey, that refund, sorry, we're going to take what's effectively a refund that you generated, your employees generated, and we're going to go ahead and use that to pay off these unpaid liabilities that your PEO hadn't handled. And we're just going to do that because that's how we roll. There's a third bigger problem here, and this is probably some of the major ones. If your PEO is unable to pay its federal taxes and we get to the point where the IRS is offsetting refunds against their outstanding tax liabilities, you have to seriously have like major red flags should be flying. Uh, this PEO is in financial bad straits. And that's a huge problem because you're still technically liable for the trust funds if that's what they didn't pay and other things like that. There's a whole bunch of problems. And remember, these people are taking money generally from your account and paying your employees. If they flake out and don't pay the employees, you're going to be on the hook for that as well. So this is a fundamentally big red flag. And in a, frankly, in a case like this, I think once you saw the offsets and people found out about it, that PEO is probably going to go out of business rather rapidly here. And it's probably going to be a nasty situation. So one of the issues you talk about is what could we do to mitigate risks if we're going to be using, we want to use a PEO because we want that access to the medical program. We want that access to a retirement plan, right? It'll be much less expensive to be run access to that HR and it gets rid of our payroll problems, gets the W-2 issued. How though do we protect ourselves or what can a client do to try to protect themselves in a case like that? Well, one thing we need to do is we should investigate any PEO we're using. And the term on the slide here says, make sure they have a good reputation. I would say, just, just understand, have they been around a long time? Have they worked with a number of employers? What's kind of the feedback? Has there been anything that could give you pause to think that this company may financially not be in the best shape? Because if that's true, then yes, we, you know, we have some major concerns about using this PEO. We would like to find some evidence that the PEO is financially stable. That may be easier said than done, but they may have you know, financial statements that were reported upon by an outside third party. Uh, they may have other reports that are done, but some evidence that they're there, you know, that they can offer you evidence about their financial stability uh, preferably ones that are better than many of our 
uh, you know, our cryptocurrency exchanges claim to offer showing how wonderful shape they were in. Obviously, this is an easy thing to get, but it is something to look at. One thing you may want to consider, because of these exposures, you remember a few years ago, Congress created the Certified Professional Employer Organization, the CPEO. Now, those have to have books looked at by a CPA with an independent report. There are various other things. There's not a guarantee they won't flake out on you financially, but they are basically cleared on showing at least enough financial strength at the time to make it less likely they're going to flake out. So I certainly would consider using a CPEO. And if that CPEO loses that status, that may be because of financial issues. So it's really something to keep an eye on. You're going to insist they maintain that status. And if they ever lose that status, your contract should allow you to move away from them. And it's a practical matter because it's always possible PEO go out of business or a PEO could do something that suggests, you know what, we may be at risk with our taxes not being properly paid. You need to be prepared to switch to a different PEO if necessary. In essence, tell your clients, you know, you should always have a plan somewhere as to how you would handle it if, for whatever reason, we suddenly became concerned about the PEO and we need to switch to somebody else or take over payroll ourselves. You know, what would our plan be if that happened? You know, it always could happen and we need to be aware of that. And, you know, that is one of the things that just is a responsibility management needs to be working on if they're going to be using a PEO. Finally, we're going to talk about a private letter ruling 2023-19009 issued on May 12th. And this deals with a credit union that settled a class action suit related to alleged defects in their pre-sale notices that they sent out when they were planning to repossess property and essentially seize the security that related to it. So they're going to be seizing it and we're kind of looking at having out dealing with that. So how's that going to work and how are we going to do it? Right. Key issue there. Um, eventually, the parties settled the lawsuit and the credit union agreed to write off the deficiencies. And what I mean by deficiency, let's say you owe $20,000 on a car loan. And we discover that, you know, they repossess the car. The car is only worth, they only get $15,000 when selling the car. That's a $5,000 deficiency. Well, to settle this class action suit, which the credit union had been disputing, but the final settlement, they agreed to settle the suit and just get rid of the problem. They agreed to, in essence, just say, hey, look, we'll take the cars. We will agree the car is the car or whatever is full payment on the property. We're going to say, yeah, we understand we don't have the authority to go ahead and, you know, Basically, we're going to say that we're going to go ahead and accept your theory that we don't have the authority to get paid the excess. So we accept that. Now, the question came up about 1099Cs. And my own take is, I suspect the class, the plaintiff, you know, basically the plaintiffs, the uh, class and attorneys for the class probably were looking for some sort of guarantee that there'd be no 1099Cs issued. Because, of course, you know, their, their clients don't want to pay tax on cancellation of debt income, right? So what they asked for was a ruling that this settlement, and this is what the credit union asked for. Interesting enough, the credit union is asking the question, was this, in essence, they said, we don't believe this is an identifiable event that requires us to file a 1099-C. Now, I say it's interesting the credit union asked this question. 
Because in one theory, you never ask the question, you never ask for a PLR unless you can live with the no answer. Okay. My guess is here, the credit union probably suspected the answer is no. But they knew it'd be a big fight with the plaintiff's counsel if they simply said, we don't care what you say, we're going to issue 1099Cs. So what they did was they included some things, and actually you can see them, and when they talk about this case, they'll tell you about some of the stuff we're going to see in the actual settlement and what they did, where they're trying to set it up to give the best possible chance that the answer will be no, but the credit union still insisted on the letter ruling, which I'm sure they also said, look, if the IRS won't give us a ruling saying we don't need to issue 1099Cs, we're going to issue them. So I suspect that's where we are. End of the day, the IRS will disagree in this case. They'll say such an event requires a Form 1099-C. Okay. Now, what are identifiable events? Well, there are a few of them here. A discharge of indebtedness under Title 11, the Bankruptcy Code. A cancellation or extinguishment of indebtedness rendered unenforceable in a receivership, foreclosure, or similar proceeding. Cancellation or extinguishment of indebtedness upon expiration of the statute of limitation for collection of that debt. Cancellation or extinction of indebtedness pursuant to an election of foreclosure remedies by the creditor. Cancellation or extinction of indebtedness rendering the debt unenforceable in a probate or similar proceedings. Discharge of indebtedness pursuant to an agreement between the specific Apple entity, the credit union, and the debtor at less than full consideration. And discharge of indebtedness due to the creditor's decision or defined policy to discontinue a collection activity and discharge the debt. When the first of those occurs, right, assuming multiple of them may issue, may indicate that you have this cancellation event. When the first one occurs, that's when you're required to issue the 1095C, 29C for that year. And you're required to specify that date as the date of the discharge, which can be important under Section 108 for things like were you bankrupt at the time. Okay. Now, as said, the letter requested, as they tell us in private letter ruling, they requested that they be said there's no reporting obligation because the court order that granted the final settlement would not be an identifiable event. Okay? Now, they talk about the facts here. The entities of credit union identified organized in state X. When debtors default on loan, they sent the pre-filled notices. Two of the debtors filed a class action lawsuit. And they, they allege the defects in the pre-sale notices they sent violated the law, trying to clearly state whether a borrower would owe deficiency balance. So essentially, the creditors and the peers, they don't ever openly state that here, but it appears that they were asking for being not having to pay the deficiency. So that's what the fight is. So essentially stating that these would be non-recourse loans. Now, if that were true, that these are truly non-recourse loans. And there are some number of issues that would arise here. But a truly non-recourse loan, when that debt is settled by the creditor taking back the security, since the creditor has no right to get deficiency judgment, the creditor has agreed to take that asset in full payment of the loan. That means there is no cancellation of debt because the debt was fully satisfied for its terms. They got the car. Right? They got the house. Whatever they got, it was fully satisfied. That's how this would work. Okay? 
Uh, the identifiable event here is found in section 1.6050P-12F, and it talks about an agreement between the parties. When the parties agree between them for less than full consideration to take the debt, they're saying, well, we're taking that's the position here. Ed. You know, we're saying, you know, the, the settlement agreement simply agreed to take the car as settlement. Right? That would be it for the debt. Now, the taxpayers are saying, they, they say, no, 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 no. Right? The, this is not, right? Their request for ruling contends it does not reflect a motion, but rather is a recognition that the write-off of the deficiency balances was required under state law. The IRS disagrees that the settlement proves that, right? Uh, well, they said where the application is, you know, pre-sale notices may have been a factor in your decision to settle, probably was. Uh, such considerations are typical whenever you settle an agreement. There are many reasons why we might settle a lawsuit. Even if we think if we litigated all the way, we'd win, there's always the risk of litigation. And regardless, there's a cost of litigation. This might be a PR problem for the credit union. There's lots of potential problems here. So bottom line, they're saying that that doesn't really count for this case. And the fact that we approved, you know, the court approved the settlement also doesn't. They had the court actually, you know, claim that they had independently researched it and discovered, you know, and they, they concluded that state law would have barred collection. But the court said, you know, the IRS said, wait, Neither party really wanted the judge to rule otherwise. This was not an adversarial. We didn't have fully briefed positions on both sides. We didn't actually have adversarial proceedings and the judge considering weighing the evidence. This was one where only one side presented evidence and it was very clear they both wanted the same answer. So this isn't really a judgment. And to be honest, they essentially were going to discharge this regardless of what the state law was. They had agreed to discharge it and that had been agreed upon ahead of time. So they're saying, now, what you had the judge do isn't going to count for us. That's, uh, uh, that's not going to count for our purposes, right? That, that doesn't count, okay? They noted that the credit union vigorously pursued litigation, including contesting class certifications throughout dependency. It is only by to a settlement agreement with the class members to gave up a disputed claim. The debt write-off is due to the settlement agreement, not due to the court's subsequent order. In essence, you had an agreement, you asked the court to bless it. That, so that wasn't what caused it. It was a settlement agreement that you agreed to that caused it to happen. So the ruling is solely related to whether the 1099C must be issued. This is important. This does not mean we've resolved whether or not the debtors need to pay tax on these amounts. That hasn't been dealt with yet. The taxpayers can and probably should, depending upon how good they think their evidence is, argue that in fact this was not a cancellation of debt. The IRS has put on notice with the 1099C that there might be an issue here, but that doesn't mean it's taxable. It doesn't mean it's taxable unless the client can show they were insolvent. It might The taxpayer may be totally solvent, not discharged in bankruptcy clearly, it we don't care. We don't qualify for any exception. It still might be there is no discharge if this truly always was a non-recourse debt and there wasn't a conversion, you know, that took place. And generally, you know, I would say, especially some recent cases have suggested that if a lender decides to pursue a path of, you know, foreclosing 
or repossessing property that by the nature of what they did ends up meaning the debt's non-recourse even though they could have gone another route and had a recourse situation um we had recent tax court case i think it was about two years ago that essentially ruled that hey that that that's fine it was a duffy case i remember the history there uh, but you know it, it's fine it's still a non-recourse debt and there's no cod rather it's a sale of the property for the amount of the debt okay okay finally we have reported early in the week by Kristen Perillo uh, in Tax Notes Today Federal on May the 9th that the, at the ABA tax section, ABA section of taxation meeting, IRS to tweak Schedule K-1 reporting of recourse debt was the title of her article. And what's interesting here is that the at that meeting, Adrienne Mikolaszek, sorry, Adrian, I probably mispronounced her name, IRS Deputy Associate Chief Counsel for Pass-Throughs and Special Industries, was speaking in one, in one of the sessions. And what Adrian told us was that the IRS has plans to revise Schedule K-1 Form 1065 for 2023 returns. Not for 22 returns, but next year, the 23 returns. Now, we all know how popular the changes to K-1 reporting or partial reporting in general have been recently. Uh, I know it was seen to be very popular going to tax basis uh, reporting of capital accounts, especially when we decided that 743B adjustments do not end up in partners' capital, but 734B1s do, and some of the other rules. And then we had the whole K2, K3 uh, situation for the last two years. So now we're going to get a brand new thing for change, and we know how much you love change. This change is going to be information requested on the debt allocation to each shareholder, and specifically going to be asking about some breakdowns of the recourse debt portion of it. Remember, currently on the 2022 and earlier K-1s, you'd be asked to say how much recourse debt was allocated to the partner, how much non-recourse debt, how much not qualified non-recourse debt was allocated to the partner. We're going to now have a couple of more things asked about, right? Uh, from, from Ms. Perillo's article, uh, you know, they're going to revise the form to separately report a partner's share of recourse liabilities from deficit restoration obligations or partner debt guarantees. Now, she says that's not just to give us better information, but to make sure the partners are aware that, you know, they are legally on the hook to pay these numbers. Now, I suspect the question becomes, I'm glad the IRS wants to go on this, you know, campaign of making sure partners are fully informed. Seems more like something, you know, the SEC or some securities organization would be more involved with in making sure you're fully informed that there might be, you might be on the hook for more than you see here. My guess is part of this is to eliminate a potential defense, at least from penalties and the like, that the taxpayer wasn't aware that, you know, th this means by recourse, you would have to theoretically pay this under some condition. You know, so they even if they were aware and even had a letter to them saying, yeah, you'd never need to pay this. There's no situation you would ever need to pay it. They might still have done it for basis because they didn't understand how that was done. So part of it is, I'm sure, to eliminate that. I see. I didn't understand. I didn't know that if I would not, not have to pay the number, that that means it wasn't debt that should be on that line. So I suspect that's part of it. I suspect it's also part of it that the partnerships weren't really great at reporting this stuff, right? 
Now, when this comes down, and it's supposed to come down in the fall is what I've been told. Now, again, that could mean anywhere from late September to mid-December. That would still technically be in the fall. I'm going to guess hopefully it's earlier, and hopefully we see this in September, right? And we're going to be looking for the draft instructions, specifically seeing exactly what does the IRS want on these lines, in what form, and how do we determine the parts there. And hopefully they'll give us some guidance in that area, either on the instructions via FAQs or whatever. That could also give us a clue on what the IRS is looking for. Uh, it may be also they're interested due to concerns, partnerships are improperly handling, uh, how you treat partner guarantees and debt restoration obligations when computing those numbers. I wouldn't be surprised, you know, if part of this is education, part of it is to eliminate the, oh, I didn't know defense. You know, there are various reasons for this, but we do expect it to come. So keep your eye on it. When it comes out, take a look at the draft instructions so we understand what we're supposed to be doing. This has been the Current Federal Tax Developments for the week of May the 15th, 2023. Current Federal Tax Developments are brought to you by Kaplan Financial Education and your stateside CPAs. If you have questions, you can email me at edzollers at currentfelltaxdevelopments.com. I'm also online on Arizona and New Jersey's Connect sites, along with the Connect sites in Illinois, Minnesota, and Washington to some extent. And I do look in for if something gets posted on Idaho's discussion group. So have access to any of those, you can post something there. And if I see it and I think it'll be of help, I'll try to post something there. Otherwise, we'll see you back here next week for more of what's going on in current federal tax developments.